0: Going through the, the Book of Titus right now. We're in. We're going to be doing the second chapter today. Titus is one of the pastoral epistles. We've been doing the pastoral epistles the last couple of months, and so it's Timothy, first Timothy, second Titus, second Timothy. These are the pastoral epistles. They were written by Paul somewhere around uh, the early sixties, right before he uh, was beheaded. So let me ask a question: Why do we study the Scriptures? Do we study them. To get more knowledge? Yeah, on one side we do. But, you know, there's, there's one thing about the scriptures that when we open this up, this is a letter. It's, a, it's, a, it's the word of God. It's come to us. It's the word of God. We see it as holy. It's inspired. It's authoritative. But it's also this letter, and it's Paul's heart. And if there's one thing we see over and over and over in the scriptures, it's this. It has no problem pointing out the sheer stark reality of where we are, our condition, and our situation. Why? Because there is, no place, there is no place of going forward if you don't know where you are. You can't actually... To, to think that everything is okay and, and uh, not actually know the reality of the situation doesn't cause you to go forward, does it? It just leaves you caught up in what's going on. And uh, this, this is what's going on in Titus. It's very similar to that. And so along that lines, in keeping with that theme... Um, I read something yesterday. I've been, been looking at this, been hearing about it for a while, and I read it yesterday. I'm working my way through it. There's a a, a, a research center. It's called Cultural Research, research Center. It's out of Arizona Christian University. Um, and they did what's called the American Worldview Inventory. And this is recent. This is just 20 and, 21 and 22. The American Worldview Inventory. 21 and 22. I highly recommend getting it. Um, but be ready for reality when you do. That's just going to say that. Um, but there's no sense in not knowing. Because if, if we're here today because we have a sincere faith, we want to grow in our faith, we want to grow internally, we want to see that faith grow in this country, we need to know what's going on around us in order to know uh, uh, how to go forward. Amen to that? So I'm going to read a few quotes from this um, that talks a little bit about the reality of where we are. This is one of the most surprising research findings is that the vast majority of American adults, 69%, 69% of, of American adults, self-identify as a Christian. And they also embrace many of the basic tenets of the faith. So there's 69 I mean, you think that's encouraging. That sounds encouraging, right? But wait. If we take a closer look at, that same, uh, uh, at the same time, many in this group hold views that clearly conflict with traditional biblical teachings. Out of that 69%, only 9% of those who self-identify as Christians, only 9% actually have a Christian worldview of Christians. If we said Americans across the board, it's 6%. And of that 6%, there are many who don't even fully hold to a Christian worldview. There's one of, the, one of the things it does is it talks about the multiple different worldviews that are confronting us in our nation. And, uh, uh, and what it says is that very few people hold any one of them. We're very syncretistic, meaning we take a smorgasbord and pick and choose. But this is one of the things it talks about. There's this one worldview. I've never heard of it before this. It's called the moralistic therapeutic deism. Anybody ever heard of that? Moralistic therapeutic deism? It, what it is it's a popular but distorted form of christianity it takes some things out of christianity and it distorts them it's identified by sociologists somewhere around the year 2000 and they and they sociologists said well teenagers are holding that they'll drop it by later and no no they didn't drop it it's further engaged into society now here's here's the disturbing here's here's what some of the core values of this are uh, belief in God remains a dis- distant from people's lives. People are supposed to be good to each other. The universal purpose of life is being happy and feeling good about myself. There's no absolute moral truths. Good people earn their way into heaven, and God places very limited demands on people. So these are the core values of this worldview, right? Now, here's the thing. This worldview was so prominent in American lives that there is actually a significant wake-up call for us in the church, in the biblical church. Why? Because there is a greater percentage of people who call themselves the Christians who hold to this worldview than rely on the Bible. The greater percentage of Christians who hold to this worldview, who call themselves Christians, self-identify, who hold this, than actually rely on the Scriptures. This is the conclusion. Simply and objectively stating, just stating the facts, just simply and objectively stating the fact, Christianity in America is rotting from the inside out. That's a quote, direct quote. The problem with the church is not the world, the problem with the church is the church. I would submit to you that the biggest problem this country faces is the problem the church faces. I really wonder if we can survive as a country if the church doesn't survive as the church. Now, this may be a new problem for American Christianity, and I say it's a new problem because for most of our history, 90% of Americans held to a Christian worldview. For most of our history, this is only this is only in the last 30 years this has happened. Just the last 30 years. That's it. Rapidly changed. Now, that seems like a new problem. The, the thing is, and there is hope here. Why? Because Scripture addresses this issue over and over and over and over again. It's, the, it's, it's you know, from the prophets constantly coming back to Israel, call, recalling the people of God back to God, all the way down to the letters of Paul, the letter to the Corinthians, Tim, Paul's letter to Timothy, Peter's letters, this letter that we're reading here in Titus. Jesus, in Revelation, his seven messages to the church was all about what? It was about corruption in the church. Guys, you can't call yourself the church and not actually be the church. Jesus actually says, if you're not going to be the church, I'll remove my lampstand because I don't want my name attached to that. So, I said all that to say, this letter is easy for us to read and go, oh, you know those Cretans... You know, all the corruption that was happening in the church, oh my goodness, how horrible, how nasty, how bad. And look at, man, you know, what did Paul have to deal with? And not look in the mirror. But the Bible says that we are to look in the mirror when we look in the scripture. We are to look in the mirror and see what does it say to us. And if we do that, we will walk away with not only hope, but a means to change and transform. And not end up in the direction in which we're headed. Amen? So at some point in Paul's missionary journey, we don't really know when, and if you want an introduction to the book, listen to last week's message. Pastor Zeke did an amazing job. I'm not going to introduce it. Um, uh, It did a really thorough job on it, but go back and listen to it. But at some point in Paul's missionary journey, and we don't really know when, it's probably after his first imprisonment uh, in Rome, he he leaves Titus, he, he, he ministers in the island of Crete, and he leaves Titus there. And this is what he says, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained in order. How many caught that? So that you might put what remained in order. You see, he was, again, what we're facing is not a new problem. Put what remains in order. If you're going to go forward and bring transformation, then what is there needs to be in the order that can. So what was the state of the church in Creek? This is where we left off last week. This is chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God. They profess to know God. 69% self-identify as Christians. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Strong? Strong? Or meant to be helpful? So, how does Paul deal with it? The church in Crete is rotting from the inside out. How does Paul deal with it? He deals with it with three ways. It's a simple letter. It's three chapters. He deals with it in simple ways. We dealt with the first way last week. He said, look, you need to appoint leaders who are going to live the way of the gospel. They need to have demonstrated lives that have the character of Jesus. And you need to raise them up. That's number one. Number two thing he dealt with last week is you need to deal with the corrupt leaders. If there are leaders who are corrupt, they're lying, they're deceiving, you need to deal with them. You need to confront them straight up. Because why? Because the truth sets you free. The truth sets you free. Now, as Paul writes other ways, we're to be filled with grace and seasoned with salt, but we're not to throw the salt away. The gospel is truth and love, not one without the other. The second chapter, which we're going to look at today, was a new household. A transformed household that is in the world, but not of the world. And the third chapter deals with a new humanity. A transformed citizenry that is in the world, but not of the world. So, so this morning, what we're going to look at is the new household. As Paul's means of dealing with... That's a pretty cool sound, whatever it is. <clears throat> yes, Lord? <laughs> um sorry. Um, Paul's dealing with uh, a new household. There, there are three points I want us to take away from looking at this chapter. Three points. Number one, his objective is a transformed home. That's his objective. Uh, and there are three objectives in this. Number two, the re- what is the result? What does it look like when it happens? And then number three, how does it happen? What are the means of it? Okay, so that said, let's go ahead and read the chapter together. This is, I'm starting in Titus. If you want to open your Bibles and read along instead of up there, because sometimes it's helpful to look in different translations and get a little different flavor. Uh, This is Titus chapter 2. I'm going to start in the first verse. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. Teach which is healthy. Catch the, the use of the language dealing with rotting from the inside out. Teach what's healthy. And, and here's the teaching. Number one, older men, now in older, just I'm going to throw this in a few commentaries as we go. Older men would refer to uh, roughly 40 and older. 40 and older. And then we refer to older women. In Greek culture, there was generally about a 10 year age gap between husband and wife. In Jewish culture, it was a little less than that. So that would kind of give you a, a, a frame of reference of what they're talking about here. So older men's going to be 40, or mostly men 50s and 60s. And then um, um Older women, then you can you can drop that a few years younger than that is for culturally what we're speaking about. So older men, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. They are to be sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Probably a better translation there would be they are good. They are to be good teachers. Good teachers, you know, the Greek can emphasize either way, so the scholars say. And so train the young women to love their, li- their husbands and children. They, to, to do what? To be self-controlled, to be pure, to be working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be reviled. Take note, take note point number one. That the word of God may not be reviled. All right, let's keep going. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Point number two, catch this. That cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say. Point number two. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering or stealing, but showing all good faith so so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Point number three, pick that up. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. He moves on. And he goes into the means of all this. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Notice something here. This is a freebie. It's just kind of thrown in there. Paul doesn't look at the island of Crete and go, it's hopeless. Let's get out of here. Take what's left and leave. He says, that's where we need to be. For the grace of God has appeared for all people. He doesn't go, it's hopeless, we only got a little bit left. All right, let me keep going here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlike, lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good work? Now declare these things. Declare these things. exhort, rebuke with all authority. let no one disregard you. And that, that's the chapter right there. So let's take a look at this. We have um, what are the, what's the objective of a transformed home? What's the results of a transformed home, and what's the means? The objective. So there's three, three objectives that are here. Now notice these three objectives. I pointed them out as we went. Titus 2.5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Titus 2.8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Titus 2.10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our Savior. Now let me change that language around and make that a little bit, a little bit better to understand. So that we might show the beauty of the teaching about Jesus. That's what that's saying. So we might show the beauty, adorn the beauty of the teaching. That's what doctrine is about Jesus, our Savior. See, Paul's concern in all three points, his objective to change the individual, to change the home so that the world sees the beauty of the gospel. What is the objective of your life and my life? He's just given it to us. The objective of the gospel isn't so that You live happy and feel good about yourself. The objective of the gospel is to set people free from the sin that is binding them up, that is tearing them down, that is destroying their homes by you and I working to have a home that shows the beauty of Jesus Christ in our home. You want to know what your ministry is? Start right there. Start right there. Do you want to change the church? Start right there. Because after all, you're the church. I, I love Dan Mueller, a preacher I've listened to quite a bit, and, and he's had people come to him and say many times, You know, I don't like my home church or I don't like that church. I don't go there anymore because they're not a very loving group of people. They're not loving at all. And Dan looks at him and says, Really? Weren't you there? I thought you were there. What Jesus is in you. So point number one. There are three objections. Notice Paul's number one thing is that this gospel needs to go out. And the way it goes out is by you and me living Jesus. It's number one. So. Pause a missionary strategy. Here's his strategy. The church is to be an agent of transformation. We are to transform culture. How do we do it? We don't do it through culture wars, and we don't do it through cultural assimilation. He's not he's there in, in it's ask me uh, in, in Connect Group. This is a this is a commercial for Connect Group. After service, there's going to be Connect Group. Come join us. Uh, we, we have a really interesting morning plan that's coming up. So I'll throw this out there. This is a question you can bring up in Connect Group. You can ask what cultural assimilation, what cultural wars were going on in Titus. Not going to break into it, but the point is that Paul wasn't saying you come into culture and force it. Paul was also saying you don't you don't come into culture and absorb it. What do we do? We participate in culture wisely. We reject what is corrupt. We embrace what is good. We learn to live peaceably. We devote ourselves to Jesus. And we devote ourselves to the common good. This is Paul's missionary strategy. By devoting. Love the Lord with all your heart. With all your soul. With all your strength. Love your neighbor as, your, as yourself. Hey you heard that before? That's how we change culture. You go into it, you embrace what you can, you reject what you can't. So what's the objective then? What is the objective of of a transformed home? To show the beauty of the message about our saving God. To show the beauty of the message about our saving God. Number two, what's the result of a transformed home? What does it look like? So uh, he mentions the different members of the household. Older men to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. There to be sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. So that sound faith, what that, what does that mean? That means I have a new Christian identity that 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 comes from my responding to God. God is calling every one of us right now. The Holy Spirit is continually calling, wooing, and drawing us. The question isn't whether or not he's calling us. The question is whether or not we're willing to hear it, whether we're to be open to it. and And we respond in faith. To embrace him. And what does that lead to? Sound love. A life of sacrificial service to others. But we live sacrificially to others. And what is that? What is that life of sacrifice? It's when we're expressing outward what we've come to believe inward. I say Jesus is my savior. I am I, I embracing all that he is. I want his spirit in my life. Then we have to live the spirit of Jesus. How did Jesus live? He came to serve and to save the lost. And number three, sound and steadfastness. You know, Paul had to go and add this one, you know, because when I looked it up and found out what it meant, I wanted to cross that one out. Determination and perseverance, that even if you get knocked down, you don't get knocked out. Now, if you have a sound faith and you have sound love, you need sound steadfastness. It means you need to be determined and persevering. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. Even if you get knocked down, you refuse to be knocked out. You may take me out, but you're not going to knock me out. Older women, reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. Teach what is good, or, or better, be good teachers. Train the young women. Young women, love your husbands and your children. Be self-controlled. Be pure. Working at home. Way to think of that, working at home, means managing the household. Managing the household. Be kind. I love this. I've heard this. I'll never stop saying it. There's never, in, there's never a reason to be unkind in the home. Never a reason being kind, submissive to their husbands, reversing the curse, voluntarily submitting to your husband as your husband is volunteering to lay his life down for the family. Young men, be self-controlled. Follow the model of Titus who is doing good works, teaching with integrity, dignity, sound speech that can't be condemned. Bond servants, being submissive to masters, being well-pleasing, not argumentative, not stealing, showing all good faith. Paul's already dealt with in other places in the text. And Pastor Hurston, I'm going to say this, Pastor Hurston really did a good job talking about bond when he did First Timothy chapter 6. Look it up. I'm not going to dive deep into it, look it up, it's it's online, you can find it. But I'll just say this, the point is, is that Paul has already said every single one of us are equal in the eyes of God. Our station in life has nothing to do with our value, our significance, our security, our worth before God. But wherever we are when God calls us, we are to embrace him with all that we are and if he gives us the opportunity to grow from that place, we do everything we can to do that. We don't do anything to jeopardize Christ in us and that's what he's saying here. All right, so I I read all these virtues. We could break them down and do a whole study on all of them, but what's really going on when you look at all these virtues? What is the result? The result is that all of these virtues actually overlap. They all overlap. What do they do? They literally confront the cultural excesses in Crete. This is Paul's message. The result of of a transformed home is to con- confront the cultural excesses. What did Paul say in chapter 1? He said, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Liars, evil beasts, and... Was, it's like, he's like, they say this about themselves. In fact, literally, the word uh, for Cretan meant, was syn- synonymous for liar in Greek vernacular. You want to call somebody a liar? You Cretan. Anybody ever heard of that? You Cretan. Here's the point. Paul had a biblical worldview. He understood this. He understood that humanity is divorced from God. Humanity is corrupt. Humanity is under a curse. And humanity is on the road to destruction. We're not basically good folks. But he also understands this. That the gospel reconciles humanity to God, it purifies the heart, it reverses the curse, and it brings salvation. So the goal is to get us to embrace the gospel. Why? Because when real transformation takes place in the individual, it can take place in the home. When it takes place in the home, it can take place in the community. And when it takes place in the community, it changes this present age and the age to come. The result of a transformational home is this. We live in a way that literally confronts the excesses of, the, of, the, of our culture with the character and nature of Jesus. That's what it means. That's Paul's goal of transformation. What is it that's in our culture right now? That's tempting you to assimilate to it. That is against the character and nature of Jesus. Is it something sexual? Is it greed? Is it materialism? Is it pride? Status? Is it pleasing yourself? Having a life that's happy and self-fulfilled? What is it? Because in the same way, that's what those... Because there's a whole list of virtues. Paul doesn't give all of them. The ones he gives specifically confront what's going on there in Crete. Saying to be Jesus means you're going to live in a way that's opposite of what's around you. So people can what? See the beauty, the objective. The result will accomplish the objective. See the beauty of the gospel of our God. So I'm asking you, what is it? What is it in your life that's in our culture that the Holy Spirit is drawing you to confront with the character and nature of Jesus. Is it lying? Truth-telling? So we have the objective to show the beauty. We have the, the, we have the result uh, to live in a way That confronts the excesses. And finally, we have the means. How does this happen? How does this transform? Because it's not about us gutting it. You know, I got to be self controlled. I got to, you know, and gutting against going against the flow. That's not what it is. He says it right here. He says this in Titus 2 For the grace of God has appeared, the grace of God has come, bringing salvation for all people. This is actually a, a little bit of a poem and it's actually genius writing and I don't have time to break it all down to see the beauty and the genius in it. It's incredible writing. But I want to point out two things that are put in parallel here. He says this. He says, because the grace of God appeared, we're waiting for the glory of God to appear. Catch that because the grace of God appeared, we're waiting for the glory of God to appear. When he says the grace of God appeared, he's not saying an ethereal idea or some aspect of the character and nature. He's talking about the person of Jesus Christ physically coming in time, in history. John uses the exact same language for this. John says this. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came in time In space, that fact, and if you go back to chapter one, in the very beginning of the chapter, he says, God has made this promise before the ages ever happened. He made this promise. He doesn't lie. He keeps his promises. Jesus actually came. Our faith is not based on a spiritual idea written down in a holy book at some point because somebody had a vision. It's based on the physical coming of Jesus Christ who lived a spotless and sinless life on your behalf and my behalf, who left his place in glory, took on the human body in the deepest, lowest place of a servant and was obedient to the God to the point of death. That's what our faith and trust is in. And he didn't stay in the grave, but he rose to new life and he is seated right now at at the right hand of the Father. And he's saying the way, the means by which you have a transformed life is by the means of the Holy Spirit who has come down To change you and me because of what Jesus had did. That's the grace of God. The grace of God is that we are corrupt. We are divorced from God. We are separated from God. We are going our own way. And by his grace, we can be reconciled to him. We can be freed from our sin. We can be washed and cleansed. We can be regenerated. We can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we can live in a way that confronts the excesses of our culture. Why? So we can show the beauty of the glory of our gospel. If you haven't figured out by now that your life counts, your life matters. But it wasn't a very loving group of people. Weren't you there? You see, The second part that goes with this, the fact of the matter that Jesus came and we have grace, tells us that the promise that the glory of God uh, uh, is coming will happen. Because God, who never lies, promises from the beginning of the ages and kept his promise for Jesus to come the first time to pour out the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we can know the glory of God is coming. That is how we have steadfastness in the faith. Because our hope isn't in the 69 or the 6% or this percent or that percent getting it right our hope is in the fact that jesus will get it right jesus will get it right now all right i want to um this is another quote from The American World Re-Inventory, it says this, Given that most young Americans view life success as whatever produces happiness or satisfaction, we'll have to address the emptiness and inadequacies of life devoted to self and satisfying our fickle and fluid emotions. How can we address how inadequate it is living for self if we're also living for self? So how do we not live for self? By God's grace. Because that's the only way. I, maybe you have a different way of doing it. I can't do it any other way. I find myself back there over and over and over again. I, I have discovered that I am addicted to my sin. But he is the antidote. And I keep coming back to that Grace. Without a solid foundation of truth upon which choices can be made, a society is doomed to hardships, failure, and conflict. You see, to me, that is the biggest thing that bothers me about the statistics. Not that I'm somehow in a minority or whatever, that doesn't matter. What matters is the end of that is hardship, failure, and conflict. That's what matters. That's what matters. In the person of Jesus Christ and through the pages of the Bible, absolute moral truths are knowable and can be applied to facilitate a successful and meaningful life. The grace of God brings salvation for all people. What does it do? Because Jesus gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness, because he did that, We can be trained by grace to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It's by his grace I do that. It's a work of the spirit, not a work of my own strength. Because the grace of God... Uh, By the grace of God, Jesus gave himself to purify himself of people who are zealous for good works. I can be trained to live self-controlled, to live an upright life, to be godly in this world. It's a work of God's grace. It's a work of his spirit. Unless you think it's not, think about the fruit of the spirit. But I say to you, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It doesn't say walk by gritted teeth, forcing yourself. It says, come back to the grace of God and submit to his grace and allow the Holy Spirit to have a work in your life. Why? For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. We all like those parts, love, joy, and peace. Those are wonderful. But then there's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And by the way, the word is fruit, not fruits. In other words, if the Holy Spirit is in your life, he's doing all those things, not one of them. The word in Greek is singular. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is in your life, he's doing all of them, not one of them. Don't depend on what you are naturally able to do. Depend on what God supernaturally wants to do in you. And so finally, how do I live in this world? This, this means through grace. How do I live in this world? Notice that grace, because God's grace is here now, transforming, changing me, I live with this hope, this hope that there is something more than what's right now, that what I am living for not only is going to touch and change lives right here, right now, not only is it going to make it better in my family, better in my community, better in my school, better in my nation, better in some other nation, not only is that, but there is a glory of God that is coming. There is a glory of God that is coming. And we can hold on to that. That's what gives us the steadfastness. That's what says when I'm knocked down, God isn't. And by the way, there may be a purpose in me being knocked down. Anybody ever heard of the cross? The question isn't whether or not the cross is real and has an effect in the world. The question is whether or not we're willing to embrace it. Well, why would I need to embrace it? Why do I need sacrifice? 69% 69% of Americans self-identify as Christians. Only 9% of them actually believe the Bible. If not you, then who? Now let's read Peter, because Peter, I'm going to close out with this long passage from Peter. Peter. That I think makes this last point. It brings it all home. Peter's saying this very thing. Our hope is anchored in a transformed world. We are waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This is what Peter says. This is 2 Peter chapter 3. Knowing first of all. That scoffers, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires. They will say. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Anybody ever hear that? Jesus isn't coming back. It's been 2,000 years. you kidding me? But here's what Peter says. They deliberately overlooked this fact. That the heavens existed a long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. If you think for a second, God's not going to bring judgment. He's already done it once. If you think for a second, God's not going to bring judgment. He's already done it once. And that's the whole point of the lesson. That's the whole point of that story in Scripture. God's going to keep His word. But by the same word the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the, that the Lord that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He's taking a, a verse from Psalms when he says that and he's kind of transposing it. And he says this. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient. I'll put another word in there. Long-suffering toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, that all should return to him. Here's the point. it's not. It's that judgment is coming. God desires that not one person experience it. It's not that it's not coming. It's that God doesn't want one of us to experience it. The fact of the matter is, He doesn't send us there. We're already headed down that path. He gives us the opportunity to get off of it. What are we doing to help others get off of the path? But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed Since all these things will be dissolved What sort of people ought you to be In lives of holiness and godliness What he's saying is If you actually believe the word of God How are you living How are you living Why Why is that important Waiting for, same word we just had, waiting for, and hastening the coming day of God. When we live godly and holy lives, when we bring transformation to our communities, to our societies, that is the sooner that we bring righteousness to the earth. You and I have a part to play in the day that Jesus returns. Peter, waiting for and hastening Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, the heavenly bodies will, will melt as they burn. Interesting language there. But I would submit to you that language is talking about what's going to happen in the spirit world. And you can again that you can ask me that later. It's talking about what's going to happen in the spirit world there. And there's good reason for that. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him, without spot or blemish. Be what? Diligent to be found, without spot or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Don't sit around going, when Lord, when Lord. do sit around going, thank you Lord, that I can be an instrument of you until you come back to reach someone. Amen. Thank you for your long suffering. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be a part of this. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Full circle. Peter and Paul in agreement. So, Paul is dealing with the church rotting from the inside. So are we. Paul doesn't lose hope, he sends somebody to go strengthen what's there. Are we? He does it by changing out the leaders, by confronting what's going on, by transforming the households, and by transforming the citizenry. Last week we talked about the leaders and the confrontation. Next week we're going to talk about the citizenry. This week we're talking about our homes. He says our objective in our home is what? To show the beauty of the message about our saving God. It is a beautiful message. Is that the whole reason you're living in your home and what is the result of it? Live in a way that confronts the excesses of our culture with the character and nature of Jesus. Bring Jesus wherever you go. And how do we do that? Because we have the grace of God. God. The grace of God that picks us up when we're down. The grace of God that washes us off and cleanses us. The grace of God that empowers us. That gives us supernatural wisdom. That pours out the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not because we deserve it. But because he delights in letting us be a part of it. What about when we don't see it all happening the way we want it to? We hold on to the fact that this isn't all. There is a glory that's coming. There is a glory that's coming. There is a glory that's coming. Amen.